I am one of your hosts, Daryl Pace. The other host, Byron, is not here right now. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to do the uh, the call that we've been doing the last uh, few podcasts, which means that we're together on the show. But I'm going to keep it short and brief so we can get into the show. But as usual, we're going to kick things off with uh, competition. And uh, for any new listeners out there, we are giving away copies of Modern Huntsman Volume 3 who are a supporter of the show and if you are not lucky enough to win then you can go and get your hands on a copy right now you can go on the Modern Huntsman website or you can go on our website which is all the W's thepacebrothers.com and uh, you can uh, find it on the online store but more importantly last week's winner so we played you a sound and we've been doing that the last few shows and we're going to continue to do that one it's educational secondly it's quite fun and uh, the sound that we played last week many of you guessed it right there was loads of correct entries on instagram and on uh, the email and i've collated them all together and uh, the sound last week was a curlew so thank you for everyone that uh, got the correct answer i actually don't think there was any wrong answers. Maybe one or two, but everyone was pretty spot on. Uh, very distinctive sound, especially in the the springtime where we live in Scotland. So, a winner picked at random is sorry, I'm just trying to scroll through. Is Sarah Reed, and uh, thank you for uh, your correct entry. Please get in touch uh, with us. Uh, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com and then we'll get you a copy of volume 3 sent out to you as soon as possible. And of course there is a new competition and this competition will be same as usual listen to the sound I'm going to make it quite hard this week I think and then you email the show or you message us on Instagram or Twitter or however else you want to message us with the correct answer and if we don't respond back to you we have read it and we have stored it it's just that we get so many entries we can't all respond all the time saying yeah correct answer or whatever whatever uh, but we will respond so here is your next sound that you need to guess correct <coughs> And that is this week's animal sound. Uh, so get guessing away. I have just come back from Norway. And as usual, it was very fun, uh, very expensive, uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely amazing time. And uh, we, I was at a wedding. I was I was having a little bit of fun for once. And uh, in, normally when I'm in Norway, I'm working. That's why I said for once. But this time was purely pleasure. Uh, the, it made me laugh when uh, I've been there for a few days and you know you kind of just get over the price of things but I went to go and grab myself some cans of cider and uh, I had to uh, make the decision not to buy them because there was six it was like 330 mil cans of cider and they were 24 pounds for six of them 
So uh, I decided against getting my, my cans of cider. and uh, But I have to say I had probably the most expensive pizza I've ever had in my life. It cost me uh, £28 for one pizza. Uh, it, it was, I would say, probably not a £28 pizza. But yeah, anyway, so that's uh, that's the kind of level you're, you're paying in, in Norway for these kind of things. So we move on today's guest i haven't actually listened to this show yet because byron edited it and he was there when he recorded it and uh, i'm just doing the intro so i'm going to listen to it after i've done the intro uh, and then while i'm editing it afterwards so today's uh, uh guest is in fact jason goldman and he's a science communicator and byron met him at the cic conference earlier in the year and they cover a huge range of things, uh, including uh, ecotourism, um, Africa, Tajikistan, eco. Um, I think I've already said, and trophy hunting, sorry. I was reading it twice. So that's what you have in store for you today. One other very important thing that I have to go through is our Patreon, our amazing Patreon supporters. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, because we've only launched it a few shows ago, was uh, a way to support us. It was uh, brought around by people actually asking us, saying, how can we support you? And we didn't actually have any kind of system in place to uh, for people just to you know, support the show. So we decided to go down the Patreon route, and uh, you guys and girls have responded amazingly, if, if amazingly is a word. And we have some awesome people that are our top tier patrons, and those are I'm gonna I'm gonna go backwards because I've got I've got a list of people. I'm gonna go backwards on it. So it is James Marchington, Richard Barker, it is uh, the guys at South Ayrshire Stalking, Tom McGraith, John Henry Pete, Chris Griffith, Ronnie Speakman from RDContracting.co.uk, Richard McNeil, and Richard Stevens. Those are our top tier patrons, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, head over to Patreon, and then it's also in the description, and then you can see all the different tiers and how you can support for as little as a pound a month or a dollar a month, whatever it is, uh, all the way to the the top tier where you get an awesome shout out every week, well every two weeks, on the show. I think that is about it for now. We will be back in two weeks' time. And I'm not too sure who's going to be on the next show because we have a few shows from South Africa that are being recorded. Uh, we might have, I think, potentially one show from the UK. Uh, but we, I think Byron is actually back in two weeks' time. So who knows, we might be able to record something fresh and new uh, from when he is back. But enjoy this show. Jason, thanks for joining me on the Into the Wilderness podcast. It's been great, been great to spend a, a bit of time with you over the last few days at the CIC conference. I think uh, my brain is a little bit frazzled, if I'm honest, because we've taken in so much information. And yesterday, on the field trip up in the community area, understanding how uh, the community shapes their conservation model, I think was very insightful. Uh, but we'll get to that. I think what would be useful for our listeners is to understand a little bit of your background so they can see where you're coming from and then go on to talk about uh, your contribution to volume two which was sort of my uh, first introduction to you sure uh yeah well thanks for having me first of all um and it has been a blast hanging out the last few days um here in vintuk so i uh uh the short version of who i am i suppose i um uh, studied animal cognition in grad school 
Um, I did my PhD sort of studying uh, birds um, and sort of how, how, how the bird mind develops. Um, and I was in a psychology department, so it was sort of, you know, an animal model to better understand people. Um, at least that was sort of the approach of our research. But, um, you know, I was always interested in the animal for the animal's sake, of course, as well. And I started writing about uh, science um, and about sort of wildlife and animal behavior, animal cognition um, in grad school and sort of my free time. By the time I finished grad school, I realized uh, when I was thinking about you know taking on a possible postdoc and sort of continuing in the academic world or doing something else, I realized that I liked writing about other people's research rather than doing my own. <laughs> um, I uh, when, which which should have been obvious because I was spending so much time in grad school doing like blogging and writing articles and things. Um, and it wasn't until I was talking with a potent, with with a researcher about putting together a potential postdoc, and I knew that if I wanted to keep doing research, I wanted to get out in the field and away from the lab. Um, and we put together this really interesting like monkey study, and all of a sudden I realized that the reason I wanted to do it was to have these like field experiences and write about them and tell people about them and not to collect the data. Which is a terrible. So it, was more, to, it was more about that than the actual yeah, research, the storytelling. Yeah. Which is a terrible reason to do to do research, um, especially when, as a science communicator, as a science journalist, um, I can still have those. I can do those things. You know, instead instead of just chasing chasing monkeys through the jungle for data, I can chase the researchers who are chasing the monkeys through the jungle. It also allows you a much broader spectrum of things that you can cover yeah, because yeah. it takes. I think people underestimate how much time and energy it takes to research a very very niche aspect. Yeah. especially when with regard to wildlife. Management. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're um, doing research in, in any in any of the sciences, you're you know you sort of become the world's expert on this like sub question of a sub question of a subfield. <laughs> this like tiny little and it's important stuff. But um, you know, as a as a writer as a science communicator, I can jump from topic to topic. You know, every few days and have the freedom to pursue the stories and the questions that are the things that are keeping me awake at night. So uh, so yeah, after I finished grad school, I sort of started freelancing full-time, writing articles, um, producing podcasts, and some other things like that. And and in the last uh, few, I've been doing that full-time now for, I think, seven or eight years. And be, because I'm a freelancer and I can sort of go where my passions allow me to, um, I also uh, founded a conference, co-founded a conference a few years ago that uh, is about sort of uh, science communication training and networking. You know, we get a lot of uh, graduate students who are maybe thinking about switching careers, you know, getting out of academia, or at least uh, if they want to stay in academia, um, becoming better communicators of their science. Um, and then a lot of early career freelancers like I was 10 years ago. And then I also have a fairly new uh, ecotourism business. Um, mm. where yeah, we, well, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, That's where we, we take people people around the world, um, you know, to these like bucket list kinds of places, Amazon jungle, Galapagos, Southern Africa. You're making everyone um, jealous right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty good life, pretty good lifestyle. Did you, do you find that with the conference and the conversations that you have with people who come to it, that there's a realization that from the science community, uh, actually connecting people with the research that's being done has been a problem and that's been communicated poorly in the past so that your average person can understand what's happening and why it's important to them. Uh, in terms of like the hunting community, the wildlife management? No, I mean, just generally speaking, I mean, we, we, obviously we're here looking at conservation and wildlife management, but, but I mean, there's, as, although I don't have time to look at much outside that field, it, it, I think it's pretty much true in a lot of science fields where the data and the research becomes so complicated and there isn't really the time from the science community to really 
break it down so it can be consumed in a manner that can be understood and communicated like it from a science communicator and obviously yeah. that is what you that's one of the things that is what you do yeah yeah i think i mean historically th- there have been some scientists and some researchers who, who have been very good at this sort of thing um and of course many who uh who are not or have not been particularly effective at at uh, not just communicating sort of you know the results of their research necessarily but also the like why the why should we care the why should we devote taxpayer dollars to to this fairly obscure question that perhaps upon first uh you know first blush does not seem to have uh, relevance for our everyday lives right that i mean that's ultimately like what's the what's the purpose of science communication on some level it's because the natural world, the scientific world is fascinating and, and we want people to be interested in things, right? It is inherently interesting. Then the the like every almost every week, if you look at the top emailed articles from the New York Times, not the top uh, viewed, but the top emailed, there are science articles. When there, you there say emailed, you mean like, like people have seen it and then want to tell their friends on. about okay, it. Yeah. yeah, and it's like because like it, it, this is cool, right? This is amazing, and and there's a large section of sort of this, the output of science communication, which is check out this cool thing about the world that you might not have known. But then there's this other part, this sort of uh, part that maybe uh, applies in a little bit more of a direct way to our everyday lives, where where it's uh, how, how does science affect policy? How does it affect our daily lives? The drier our, stuff. Our, our health, um, our our environment, um, which may be dry or at least, or at least may, um, may not be uh, as immediately as inherently interesting to people mm-hmm. and that's that's equally important because if we are gonna as a society decide to fund certain things um then it's important uh it's important that we be able to as scientists be able to articulate why it matters mm. um and so so historically you know the, there there's been successes and there's been failures um and i think if we look i'm, I'm certainly more familiar with some of the successes and failures in the US but if we look at certain trends about how people incorporate scientific knowledge or knowledge that's been derived from science into their everyday lives you know things like how we think about climate change how we think about vaccination there have been some pretty massive failures um, on the part of the scientific and science communication worlds and uh, it's not to rest all the blame for some of these problems at their feet but uh, I think uh, you know if you're a scientist you you certainly if you're no good at that or you don't want to, that's fine. You've got to find someone who will. Though. Yeah, and you have to be willing to like engage with the journalists and engage with the science communicators uh, in a in, in sort of good faith mm-hmm. yeah, um, because those stories are uh, really important to tell. The things that we've been discussing uh, over the last couple of days have centered around uh, wildlife management and conservation uh, and, and hunting as a management tool within that kind of system. Uh, the first time uh, I came across uh, your name and your your writing was uh, your contribution in Volume 2, which was the most intriguing and fascinating story and a great example, actually, of a lot of the things we've been talking about in the last couple of days. Just flesh out that story and, and actually how, how it came to be, because what a remarkable place. Sure, sure. So um, as someone who covers conservation, wildlife, ecology, these topics, you know, inevitably the question of hunting as a management tool is going to come up. And so I'd been interested in that because it's such a... But you don't have a hunting background, No, no, I did not grow up hunting. Um, I I grew up in Los Angeles as uh, sort of as as urban a lifestyle as you can have. And Los Angeles uh, has plenty of nature, 
it's uh it's got an it's got a national park in the middle of it and you know we've got we've got big gats living living in our neighborhoods which is uh the only other mega city you know city of 10 million people or more that has that is Mumbai. They've got urban leopards. We've got urban mountain lions. Yeah, I've even learned the name of some of them recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did not have this background, but I was interested in wildlife and in conservation and, and in how humans and wildlife can sort of have a future together on this planet. Uh, it's something I sort of covered from time to time when I when I had a chance. And then, uh, and then Cecil the Lion happened. Okay. And because I'd written a couple of times about what were the potential upsides to hunting from a conservation perspective? I got uh, all of a sudden overwhelmed with a request to, you know, call into radio shows. And tackle that issue. And, yeah, and to sort of be the talking head expert. Specifically to, on the issue of Cecil. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and the question of, like, I, I think for a lot of people, at least at least in, you know, outside of the hunting world, um, who are interested in wildlife issues, uh, f- from a non-professional perspective, this might have been the first time that they were really forced to confront this question of, um, wait a second. How how could it be that killing an animal can help the species? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, because on the face of it, it's not intuitive. No, it's really not. Um, it's very contradictory. And so, so I had this like over the course of that week. I I remember it was like it was July. It was the summertime, twenty fifteen, fourteen. 16, I don't remember. Um, I I was forced to sort of have this conversation over and over and over again. And I I sort of asked myself if if there's an argument for uh, with, with actual measurable conservation outcomes mm-hmm. um, for the use of of hunting, um, where is it? Like, what's the case study? What's the best case? What's the model? And I found these communities in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan that um, practice what 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 I what we now what I now know is sort of you know community based uh, conservation hunting. And so I uh, pitched the story uh, to a, a digital magazine called Biographic. Um, which is produced by the California Academy of Sciences, a uh, uh, natural history museum in in um, San Francisco, California. Um, very sort of you know liberal town, liberal city. I wasn't sure that they would they would accept the pitch. You know, lightly give me money to fly to Tajikistan to report on um, why it seems to be that hunting these mountain goats no one's ever heard of called markhor. Uh, it actually helps the species, helps conservation, is a good so thing. So that, that was your pitch to them? Yeah, yeah. And did, they, did they ask what you expected the outcome to be? Uh, I, I mean, I, I had some conversations with the editor about, you know, what what um, what I expected the arguments would be. Mm-hmm. You know, on some level, you can't know until you actually go out no, there and get out there and report no. it. And, and what, I, what, what I hoped to find out and who I would be talking to and this sort of thing. And, and I, they took what I think is a, a risk – um, on accepting the story, um, given the kind of audience that publication has, and um, and in in the sort of you know post Cecil world we were living in, yeah, um, it's pretty divisive. Yeah, or it could have been. Yeah, and um, and and to their credit, they took that risk and they uh, you know were willing to pay, like pay for that travel and pay me to go to go and, and research the story. And I published um, I published that story. It was about markhor hunting, which are these you know markhor these. Um, endangered mountain goats with cool horns. This is incredible, like, twisting straight. Yeah. It's a spiral, but they're overall in a straight Pretty straight, form. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this particular subspecies, or this particular species of markhor. And um, I spent some time in these, like, community-based conservancies who, uh, for for years, b- before, uh, before they had 
instituted this sort of trophy hunting program, there was rampant poaching and, uh, you know, for meat um, because all hunting in Tajikistan at the time was illegal. Um, and, you know, it, it's it, what I had to sort of clarify in my piece to this like largely American audience is that this was not like the poaching that we think of when we hear about rhino poaching or elephant poaching. These were hungry people who needed meat. Yeah. Um, who needed food to it eat. wasn't for a byproduct. It right. was for the meat. Right. Right. Yeah. Not, not like ivory. Um, but but as as a result of this, and also uh, competition between the wildlife and um, livestock, domestic livestock for for grazing resources, um, the populations were serious decline. Because um, there was no incentive for to do anything with right. the wildlife other than right. consume it. Right, right, right. Uh, consume it, and and uh, the incentive was to raise your livestock. And um, these are like really high elevation communities where there's not that much that grows. <laughs> so the main competition for wildlife there is 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 over the the grazing resources. And and also there's some issues with disease transmission between the domesticates and the wildlife. In a similar um, way to there is in North America. Yeah, yeah, and in and in many places. So. So it was it was fascinating. The article came out. It was pretty well received, both sort of in the hunting community and in the, in the non-hunting sort of wildlife communities. But of course, I didn't travel all the way there just to visit with this one community. Um, and in my time there, I spent uh, uh, also time with some communities a few hundred kilometers away up on the Pamir Plateau. In also in Tajikistan, but with, uh, these villages were made of predominantly ethnic Kyrgyz people from neighboring Kyrgyzstan. And and that was the story that I ended up writing for Modern Huntsman when I got connected with Tyler and sort of learned about what he was doing and, you know, what, try to think of what stories I had, like already reported that I um, could contribute. Um, I thought of these um, uh, conservancies and it's not Marco that they were hunting, it's uh, Marco Polo sheep and uh, Ibex. So that was sort of the sequel uh, the sequel story and uh, similar sorts of themes about, you know, how a community can come together around this resource and be incentivized to protect it. And then how the community decides how to allocate the funds that they receive based on that, based on those activities. Is it completely up to the, the communities as in how many are shot in one year or uh, is there a government intervention? Yeah. So that? the government, um, which had, to, which had to be sort of convinced to legalize, in the first place, hunting in the first place. Of, how did of, how did they do that? Um, so uh, the way the way the story gets told, as I understand it, with with help from several NGOs like the GIZ, the German Development uh, Group. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it translates. And um, Panthera mm-hmm. and some other people. Uh, these communities sort of uh, decided that if they sort of could self police and and stop poaching and prove to the government that they could um, sort of be, become stewards over this resource, then eventually the government could be convinced, um, with uh, in consultation with with researchers, to open up a limited uh, a limited sort of hunting program. You know, a certain certain number of tags per year that would get allocated across these communities in a certain way and it was about 10 years of uh like non-poaching activities um so like to prove themselves right right um that they could sort of be trusted um that's a long time yeah especially yeah. when the the history prior to that was use what you want not because it was legal but because that's what they'd always done right 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 and um so it yeah, takes really strong so leadership it, yeah, from within the community. Yeah, it's a really um, and, and uh, certainly a lot of sort of capacity building um, that had to occur. Yeah, so there must have been a bit. Of, there must have been fu- funding available for them to 
survive that change. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, figuring out alternative sources of nutrition mm-hmm. and, um, again, developing these capacities um, uh, among among these communities in terms of things like, you know, monitoring wildlife and, and uh, finding wildlife and, um, you know, how to use a spotting scope and, and creating the sort of uh, expertise in how to interact with international hunters and all, all, all these sorts of things, you have, all, all the sort of infrastructure you need mm-hmm. to create these kinds of programs. So these conservancies that exist there now have gone from a place where the wildlife there really had no value to one where there is enough value on the wildlife for them to not only leave it alone but protect it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um and, and leave it alone was the wrong phrase. Right. Utilize it. Right. Utilize it in a sustainable and yeah. sustainable way. And and you know, not only has um uh, poaching significantly decreased. Not only have these communities been able to benefit financially, economically from the limited sale of these um, hunting uh, permits, but there are, there have been measurable conservation outcomes. There are more markhor now than there were before. There are also more snow leopards now, which you know require which markhor are their prey base, part of their prey base. Um, there are now more snow leopards in some of these areas than there were before, and that's been proven. Yeah, independently. Yeah, 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 by by Panthera researchers and others. Yeah. I think one of the one of the Markor concessions conservancies um, a few years ago, the estimate was ten snow leopards, and I don't I don't remember exactly how many hectares the, con- the conservancy was, but it was like the for its size, it was the densest population of snow leopards ever recorded in this area. Habitat plus food source. Right, right, and I mean, and and this sort of pattern, what what had been happening, and, and this is why Panthera was interested, right? Big cat conservation. Um, this sort of pattern is known all over the world. You deplete the sort of ungulate prey base, and then the the carnivore predator, right? The the big cat, which can no longer go after wild prey, starts to turn to domestic prey, um, and they start taking out your domestic goats and your. And then yaks. you end up with a conflict. And then you end up with your conflict, right? And so then people start going after the snow leopards. And th- this this sort of pattern is like predictable. It happens all over the world in in, in some way, right? And so, uh, you know, not only do you see these direct effects on the um, the the ungulate, sort of the, the target of this hunting program, but you see these broader sort of ecosystem level impacts. And it's a conservation success story. Um, it really is. And um, you know. As far as I'm concerned, one of the best models, and the programs here in Namibia are very similar, sort of similar models, similar, similar approach. But this is taking place, you know, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan is a place where you could not... Um... Okay, so what happens when you uh, use a room without permission is that you end up having to move. We are actually sitting at the CIC conference and we found ourselves a little quiet room, which turned out to be someone else's little quiet room. So now we're in a quiet hallway, so I'm not sure if we're going to be interrupted at some point, but uh, I'm not quite sure exactly where we got to. Uh, but I was going about to ask you about the the view of someone like an organization like Panthera when it's very clear that the hunting has made a positive impact on a non-huntable species right. which is their focus right. were they or have they been quite willing to discuss that yeah um yeah so my my sort of understanding is that the official sort of party line um and you know I'm I'm not a representative of Panthera so take so this is with a grain of salt my understanding is that they support they don't support hunting for big cats but they do uh support uh, sort of you know sustainable hunting when it can positively impact big cat conservation okay. um, for other kinds of species 
Yeah, it's an interesting stance, that, because it's, uh, I mean, there's parallels with what happens here in Africa, but you could argue it is through the hunting of big cats. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, it, you know, that may reflect the nuances of, you know, their membership and mm-hmm. sort of the, the, the mission and, um, you know. The, I can understand why, why that is the stance that they yeah, take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, in any case, most people are going to have some some line where, you know, species or animals sort of in 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 this collection in in this pot um are fair game and like these are untouchable Mm -hmm. um and that's that that's happened that that happens to be how they carve up the world and you know certainly it's not no more or less reasonable to carve up the world in a different way Mm -hmm. so what are the parallels that you've seen between that experience and then what we've been doing in the last couple of days uh, here in Namibia now I'm particularly thinking about our trip yesterday where we were go- we went to a community run conservancy yeah so um the community based natural resource Man- natural resource management program cbnrm here in Namibia Good memory. um <laughs> is a, a v- very similar to um sort of the model that I uh saw in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan which is itself based on a successful model from Pakistan yeah of course yeah the main difference um, I mean, there's there's some differences, but but the big one, one big one, uh, here in Namibia is that hunting hunting tourism coexists in many places alongside um, photographic or ecotourism, which. So you're not you're not seeing that in like Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, no. Um, so the the places where I was, like these conservancies, are along the southern border. Uh, like the Markhor conservancies are on the southern border of Tajikistan, where directly across the river is Afghanistan. And this is this is simply not a place most people want to go for vacation. And you know, even that aside, it doesn't have at least at least at this time the infrastructure to support tourism. You know, there are no hotels really to speak of. There are no restaurants. Um, I mean, there are some in you know some of the big cities, but certainly not out in the countryside. And the kinds of things that you know tourists, you know, e- even sort of an ecotourist, you know, who's who's willing to sort of get out there and get a little bit dirty, still has some sort of sophisticated you know needs. They want uh, a hot shower and Wi-Fi and a comfortable bed. And um, you're not going to find that in the right. mountains. And there. That, that infrastructure simply doesn't yeah. exist, but it, but it does here. And these things exist um, in many places, like I said, side by side. Hmm. Um, so that's 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 one tremendous difference between what's happening there, and what's happening here. It's interesting to see how they they carved up their the area that they were they looked after that they were responsible to manage and they had the the one place that was for what they called conservation hunting which might otherwise be termed trophy hunting and then they had I think they, did they call it sustainable use uh yeah so they um part of their conservancy was devoted like entirely just to photographic tourism right um which is which is a wildlife use in some way Part of it was devoted to what they call conservation hunting. Part of it was devoted to what they called um, own use Sorry, hunting, own use hunting, right? Yeah, Which is, um, uh, you know, for for meat when when local people want to go out and just get some meat from wildlife. And and then part of the concession was devoted to um, uh, agriculture to, or farming to livestock and to uh, living spaces. Um, and and quite a bit of it was sort of mixed use where there you know, was there, there was wildlife and there was livestock, but from a management perspective, perhaps the priority was on the livestock versus on the wildlife or the tourism. Yeah. And then as the discussion went on from that, as they've 
painted this picture of how they, they, they split up the management and where the focuses are. We got to the point of them explaining how their focus uh, in terms of economics had shifted depending on uh, the circumstance. So we're right at the end of a, or not, or not at the end. They don't know where the end is going to be, but we're we're a long way through quite an extensive drought here in Namibia, and they had essentially shut down the own use hunting aspect of it in favor of keeping the conservation hunting right. where foreign clients, largely speaking, are coming in. And I thought that was a, a really really interesting that a local community based conservancy had made that decision. And I think it just shows the importance of speaking and listening to people on the ground when decisions like that are made. Obviously, they are making the decisions, but that's not always the case. Very often, the decisions are made from people who are not on the ground. Right, right. Some government official. Yeah, or, um, yeah absolutely. Uh, I also thought it was very interesting that the community was able to sort of grapple with the trade-offs in this, uh, what I thought was a, you know, fairly impressively sophisticated way, mm. um, you know, where what's the value of the meat and what's the value of the money? Uh, how do we sort of trade trade these two things off of each other and uh, to sort of voluntarily decide as a community that you're not going to go out and hunt yourself. And instead, you're going to invite, uh, you know, international hunters to come in um, where, you know, the, the community will still benefit from the meat, certainly. But then they also get a big fat check. Yeah. And so then they they can go and buy protein. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, so they get the protein from the hunt itself, most of it, but then they can also afford to go out and acquire other sources of nutrition. A lot of the debate that we had in the symposium from the day before we went to the Conservancy uh, centered around how we articulate these discussions so that they can be better understood. You gave us a presentation that was somewhat centered around that. Have you come to any other conclusions, having experienced it now on the ground, as to how we can better communicate management principles, which include hunting? Because for many people, it's just so completely unpalatable, the idea that hunting can be part of a system which is for the good of an ecosystem and the wildlife within it when you're killing them. Yeah, I think think there's a couple things. And the the first thing, which I, I didn't talk about as much in my presentation this year, but I talked about. Uh, at, at last year's CIC communication symposium in Madrid, which is just the, the importance of storytelling, right? The uh, value of having a narrative with characters and a beginning and a middle and an end. You know, we're a species that has evolved for stories. And I think we can um, sort of uh, process information in a much more meaningful way when it's presented as a story. You know, there's this, one of the things I did talk about at the presentation this year is this uh, sort of idea in science communication of the deficit model that understanding is the result of uh, the application of knowledge to ignorance, right? That, or, or to put it another way, ignorance plus knowledge equals understanding. You know, that if only... Which seems fairly intuitive. Right. And the idea is, is you know, sort of like, if only the people understood the facts, then uh, the inevitable outcome of that is that they would agree with my opinion. <laughs> um, and, and there is something intuitive about that. But, but people are not, you know, even if they are ignorant to these facts, they're not, their minds are not empty and devoid of anything else. They, they people come to you know this conversation with pre-existing ideas, accurate or otherwise, with certain social values, with cert- with certain um, emotions. It's it's just simply never as simple as you know give people the facts and and then your work is done. So one way to to 
deal with that reality is to use story. And then the second way is that um, you put people at the center of those stories, right? And I, I, I because believe, it becomes more relatable. You, yes, but also it helps to drive home the point that, um, and and I believe this from conservation perspective as well, not just from a communication perspective, which is that making in, in order to make the lives of animals better, you need to make the lives of people better. And, and the reverse is also true. If you improve the lives of people in general, I think you find that um, uh, uh, the lives of animals are improved. Because it creates a system where we're part of it. Right. right rather that, than that, removed right, from it. Right. And so if you can start to frame some of these wildlife issues, which which are understandably to, to many people sort of secondary to, to human issues, you know, uh, uh, Poverty, education, uh, uh, food security. You know, those of us who live and breathe in the conservation world understand that these things are are inextricably linked. Yeah. But outside of that, um, they can seem like wildly separate sets of problems. So if if you can, uh, you know, in telling a story, sort of establish how these things are connected, uh, putting some of those maybe human uh, human issues at the forefront, then I think you can uh, start to move that needle. And in terms of mediums to communicate that message, I mean, there's a lot of mediums out there to do it with. I know certainly from uh, from the hunting perspective, if I think about like the writing that I do, it's maybe I don't try hard enough, but it's obviously far easier to get those kind of uh, messages and stories told in hunting uh, hunting. I was going to use the word bias, but hunting-focused publications than it is into uh, something that is completely unrelated. How, uh, or do you have any advice on how to bridge that gap where there can be that crossover of information? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, that, I mean, that's what you're doing. Yeah. At least, at you've least, come, at from, that's you've the, come at it from the outside that's the goal. in. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I think certainly I, I sort of live like I said, live and breathe sort of in the wildlife conservation world uh, and sort of on the periphery, on the on the sort of bleeding edge of the hunting world. You know, as, as I said, I didn't grow up in it, but um, partly as a result of these experiences reporting these stories, I've gone and learned learned how to hunt myself. Uh, a couple of years ago, I successfully shot my first my first duck and uh, took her home and learned how to like, you know, uh, how, to, how to butcher it and cook it and um, feed my friends with food I'd found in nature. I love duck. Um, I, and Tastes so duck is delicious. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing like a potato fried duck fat either. Yeah. A lot of it, you know, as as we were just talking about, is about framing the story, right? Is this a story about hunting or is this a story about biodiversity in which hunting is a tool that you use? So you're shifting the focus but still telling the same message at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, when when you're... In any story, right? There's certain there, there, there's sort of a way that you tell it. There's there's characters, right? Um, I think part of the reason why like the the sort story of Cecil was so compelling is that there was such a clear story with such clear characters, and it was very easy to paint this dentist from Minnesota as like the personification of evil, right? And didn't and the, take much creativity. And then, I mean, and and yeah. and just you know the 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 animal the you know lions are incredibly charismatic and they, they just the the everything was like sort of perfectly set to sort of create this particular narrative right um and and when i when i pitched that first story to biographic magazine you know i I'd later you know after it came out was having coffee with my editor and he sort of pointed out that if i'd pitched sort of the same story with the same 
like measurable conservation impacts and all these things. But at the center was about, uh, you know, a, a wealthy white man who'd gone out and shot an elephant instead of a mountain goat that like no one's ever heard of. That might've been a risk that, that the magazine wasn't willing they to weren't, take. Yeah, okay. But it, essentially the same story. Yeah. 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 But, but, but like different how characters do you, in it. right. Different characters, different animals. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, if, so my goal as a, as a, as a journalist is to, 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 to tell a story, but like to report the facts, right? I'm not necessarily advocating for something, but, um, if you are going to advocate for something, you have to be strategic, right? And so the strategy might be, you know, don't start with the elephant and the lion <laughs> start, you know, you start somewhere else and have those conversations, which are, which are difficult, but maybe they can be had, um, maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit sort of emotionally and cognitively easier for people to engage on some of these difficult questions when it's something that feels a little bit more removed um, than, you know, the elephants and lions that, you know, we're all familiar with from the time we're born. Cause these are the characters in our storybooks. Yeah. All kids can, point uh, even at a young age and identify what an elephant is yeah because it's yeah. so iconic yeah and I, I, I joke around that my i have a, I have a two and a half year old niece and um you know it's, it's sort of my secret plan to turn her into a naturalist <laughs> um and uh you know she can identify an elephant and a lion but not necessarily any of our like native wildlife in california and uh you know that's on some level because those those animals aren't in our storybooks. You know, they're not, they're not the stuffed animals that we give our kids to, you know, to sleep with. Um, there's no stuffed mule deer. Um, <laughs> Maybe you should change that. Uh, Maybe or... you should start a toy company that makes stuffed mule deer. Yeah. And, and kid stories yeah. about, about these creatures of, you know, you, you might run into some other problems then, you know, an extreme emotional attachment to a mule deer, <laughs> Maybe. Which, which might impact our ability to, uh, to manage, to manage deer through hunting. In Unintended consequences. But, but this, this point that we are, more familiar in some ways with like the biodiversity of very far away places than the biodiversity in our backyards uh, is is something worth thinking about. What was your takeaway from uh, our discussion and, and what we were hearing today about the impact that other countries outside of Africa have in their decision making on what's possible on the ground here? And by that, I'm, I'm thinking about the actual trade of trophies yeah it's, it's particularly big game because that's where most of the issues lie right. in terms of like CITES listings right it's so it's so complicated like like all these things are and i think that's why they're particularly fun questions to engage with I, i've started to use the term eco-colonialism um especially with respect to you know like issues in african conservation you know this is a place that for so long was um subject to the whims of people who are not from here and uh although you know now all these nations are are sort of independent and you know have their own you know governing bodies it's it's all too easy for those of us who are at home in in the west or in the global north or however you want to sort of frame this to impact in a very real way what happens to the daily lives of people here through uh regulating you know like the import of trophies and things like that um and even if you know it's it's you know from a good place um, you know, because we deeply care about this wildlife, uh, maybe we need to care a little bit more about the daily lives of these people, or may, or 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 maybe we need to better, more, uh, more accurately understand the relationship on a on a on a sort of boots on the ground level between the daily lives of the people who live here and the wildlife that we're asking them to coexist with, and the impact of 
our decisions on the, right. on the wildlife right. as well. Right. Um, because I think a lot of that's not fully understood. Yeah. I mean, it becomes much more clear when you're here, you speak to people who are involved in the tourism side and the hunting side. You hear from the people involved in, in the ministry here in Namibia. I mean, Namibia is a, a really great example, I think, in terms of an African context of a country that is doing a pretty good job of managing its wildlife in very difficult yeah. times yes. with uh, the lack of rain that they've had. And you talk to the farmer who, um, you know, can't, can no longer raise livestock because there's not enough rain, there's not enough food, there's, um, you know, if you can't use your land for that, but you also can't use your land uh, in an economically productive way for wildlife, then what's left? You know, maybe maybe you allow a mining company to come in and, and explore, and, and, and then there's really no habitat left for wildlife. Um, you know, I thought it was really interesting. One of the things that someone mentioned this morning is, um, you know, we all... We all know the name Cecil, but nobody knows the name of the little girl who was killed by a lion the week before. Or the name, or, or the, well, they didn't have names of the six or seven lions that were poisoned one right. week later. Right, right. Um, or frankly, like the 600 other lions that are yeah, yeah, killed exactly, perfectly yeah. legally every year. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, nor the, you know, I don't know how many pangolins are, are killed every year. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, you know, the massive amounts of overfishing that have, like the, you know, um, there's, there's, Many, I think, many ways you can go to talk about how how we value wildlife. Yeah, that that was coming through a bit um, yesterday. Was the emotional attachment that we have to wildlife and how that potentially distorts our concern on a species level? Yeah, where we're so concerned about an individual animal rather than looking at the bigger picture. I think it's something that's very hard for us as humans to do. To yeah. consider species level management, yeah, because yeah. you have to be actually a little bit detached. Yeah, you have to be willing to. I mean, uh, you know, you 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 have to be willing to consider the population, the ecosystem, right, the species, more than just the individual. And and that's, I, I sort of can understand that's in some ways increasingly difficult as we learn more and more about the emotional lives of animals. You know, we, there was, there was a time I think when, uh, you know, we thought that most animals were sort of, you know, automatons. Um, and, but, but, but now we do know that, for example, elephants do have rich inner lives. They do have very complex social lives. They have family units. And, um, so when we go and say maybe we have to, you know, kill kill a handful of elephants or what did I say lions? I meant elephants. Um, although it's also true of yeah. lions, frankly. When we when we say you know from a management perspective, from a management perspective, maybe we have to kill a handful of these animals. It's it it forces us to confront some complicated ethical questions, right? From a top level, people who might be against it when you start to explain it. When certainly when I've had the conversations, they start to come around. But what it always comes back to in terms of their issue with it is why somebody would want to do it, right. why the individual person right. would want to go and kill an elephant, even if they can kind of grasp the idea that all right, there is too many in the area, they need to do something right. with two hundred right. elephants, right? Or or that or that the the economic impact is is useful. I mean, when I was in Tajikistan, I I was looking at water pipes that were that were built to bring water into villages so that girls it's almost always you know young girls didn't have to spend their time going out to fetch water from a well and now they can spend their time in school right i saw sports equipment that was bought 
with trophy hunting money, I saw, you know, school books and uh, I heard about um, an entire village that was vaccinated against the measles um, with trophy hunting money. And uh, I I learned about a man who had been mauled by a bear whose medical expenses were paid for. With trophy hunting money, wow. and um, in in w- what I think is one of the most like like radical uh, uh, sort of moves that I've seen in, in terms of like habitat protection, there was one one conservancy in in Tajikistan on the Pamir Plateau that used trophy hunting money to lease from the government an entire valley to keep livestock out, so that it would the the forage there. The grass would be available for wildlife to graze. Um, you know, there's many areas where hunters are kept out, but there's not many places in the world where uh, like uh, 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 livestock are kept out in that way. That's very forward thinking. Yeah, yeah, like way more forward thinking. Which must have come as an appreciation of what they'd gained. Yeah, uh, where are we going with this? I don't remember. It doesn't really matter because <laughs> I think we came to a good conclusion there. Um, do you think we have? an issue with or is the phrase trophy hunting an issue and barrier to the conversation to a more sensible pragmatic conversation yeah yeah probably but i mean so one of the things that um you know when we were in this uh, conservancy yesterday um the the sort of elected chairman you know pointed out that that sort of as a community they've decided they're no longer referring to it as trophy hunting they're now calling it conservation hunting and i think there's something to that you know, he says we we hunt to conserve. We don't conserve to hunt. And I think there's something to that. But you know, in terms in terms of communicating with this audience of people who are you know iffy on it or or like just clearly against the question of hunting, the matter of hunting. Um, you know, I think I think those what's the saying? Those horses have already escaped the barn. Yeah. Like you know, people no point are in closing the barn door. Right. After people, the horse bought right. Bought exactly. It. That's, that's it. That's it. Um, I'm I'm from the city. We don't have horses. <laughs> um, you know, people people will quite reasonably be like, well, now you're just playing word games. Like it's still the same thing. Yeah. Because um, it is. Because it is. So yeah, the language matters, but also like we need more than that, right? It's not, it, it's it's we, we need more than pithy pithy phrases. Mm. We I, I, you know we need stories. You know we need we need real meaningful good faith engagement on these on these questions. Yeah. There was a few things uh, from the discussion that we've just walked out on now uh, with them reevaluating how to measure trophies, which I thought was an interesting discussion where it was more focused on age rather than length or size. Uh, I've talked about it when I was in uh, New Zealand with Joseph where his main focus with tar is 100% on age. He takes great pride in every year being able to say, my average age of tar that I've hunted with clients, bull tar, he is doing culling for management purposes as well, increases. Right. And he, he was very pleased that his uh, w- one of the guys who works for him and guides some of the hunting, he was like a year older than him in terms of their average. And they're, they've got this kind of really useful kind of competition going on because it is to the, uh, to the end cause of what they're trying to achieve, which is take out the very oldest bulls out of the system, which are beyond productive age. Right, right. Which, what, which, did, what did you think of that discussion today? In the well, I, I think that, I mean, I think that's the right, the right move, um, you know, correct if, focus for yeah. It. If if the if if the point is to sort of maintain these sort of stable populations of wild animals and also uh, profit economically from from 
sustainable using them i mean to profit from using them then the sustainable way to do it is is to is to target these sort of old males that are no longer reproductive and um you know depending on the social sort of dynamics of the species have been maybe kicked out of the herd you know if the average age is increasing that that says something about the the demographic makeup of the rest of the herd you interesting know, I, to see how that plays out yeah, yeah yeah i still don't um you know even even i think i understand these sort of the idea of what what it means for something to be a trophy more now that I've sort of had this hunting experience myself, but on some level, to me, like what I, I I still I still have trouble understanding like what's the difference between you know a a, um, a skull with horns of so many of thirty one inches versus thirty four inches like it's still going to look really good on your wall. It's it's a hard <laughs> one for me because I have never had anything measured. Yeah, because I don't care. As yeah. long as it's, I know that it's the right animals that's taken out. Right. And to that point, the vast majority of stuff that I hunt isn't even male right. because it's part of a, a greater management plan. Most of the stuff I hunt from the country that I'm from is deer species. Right. And the population control is not done with hunting males. Right. It's done with uh, yeah, controlling the female components of the population. I mean, that hasn't really been part of the discussion that we've been having really at all here. Where, uh, And yet, there's a really important part of the debate is the acknowledgement that population management actually happens through... Uh, methods that have nothing to do with the trophy element of it. Right, right. Yeah, I think, and I think that probably reflects the sort of Africa-focused nature of the conversations that have been happening here. Because you know, given where we are, because um, at least sort of to dramatically oversimplify things, you know, I think a lot of the idea behind hunting here is that you give an economic value to to the animals on the landscape, right? You give an incentive for people to be willing to endure the conflict that inevitably arises yeah. through sharing. Whether sharing, that sharing. be grazing or actual right. predator conflict. Right, right. Yeah. Um, they have to know, be worth more alive in the landscape right, alive than, than dead. Than dead, right, or yeah. absent. You know, when it comes to, um, you know, some of these uh, other issues in, you know, North America and Europe and where, where we're talking about animals, you know, like deer that that you're also uh, i think people are more people eat more easily see those animals as food yeah they do you know th then it's a different set of questions it's it's less about the economic benefit from allowing for you know limited hunting it's it's more about their the ecological impact right then, yeah right exactly. and yet and yet you look at the issue right now being discussed at the conference which is happening as we record this podcast in botswana and they are wanting to cull elephants for right. the same reason that we want to, cull that deer. we do or, cull deer. deer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, uh, <laughs> but try and, uh, the difference between a deer standing and an elephant standing in terms of the emotional response yeah. from pretty much everywhere, right. I would suggest. Right. I mean, whether you're a hunter or not, right. you're going to feel differently about that. And that's something that right. for, all, for all the reasons we've, yeah, we've yeah, talked yeah, about. But, but I think part of, you know, when you talk about how, 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 our our feelings, you know, back home have a direct impact on like uh, uh, wildlife on the ground here in Africa. We we're, we're just we don't look at an elephant and see food. You know, even if you're you know even if you're not a hunter, I, I think I mean I I do eat meat and I learned how to hunt, so it's a little hard for me to imagine what I might think if I was a vegetarian. But e even still, like within within our cultures, these animals are they're they're wildlife, but they're also food, right? A, d a duck. You can find a duck in a supermarket. Not a wild duck, a domestic duck, but but nonetheless. In um, the UK, you can find wild. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but you're not, you know. You're not going to find elephants. Right, right. Um, 
But if you're part of a local community in the country here where elephant hunting is legal, then it is food. Then it is food. Yeah, yeah. And it's food for a long time. Yeah. And I think that's that that's one of the key disconnects. You know, and, and you know, when I talk to people at home, uh, about about these issues you know i think many of them are surprised to find out that you know when when you know they have this stereotype in in and it's and it's a reasonable stereotype of sort of the wealthy white male hunter who comes to africa and shoots something and and you know they think they sort of take the horns or they take the tusks or they take the skull or whatever it is and then the rest of the animal is left on the ground to rot and are surprised to find out that no like that that meat gets eaten um, you know, it may not get eaten by the hunter. I mean, maybe the hunter that night will will enjoy You'd a meal. Do a very good job if you could eat a whole right. elephant before he leaves. <laughs> um, but but that is that is nutrition. That's protein. Yeah. Um, and, and really think, needed protein. I think a lot, a lot of people are surprised to find that out. A lot of people are surprised to find out. You know, that endangered it's illegal to hunt endangered species in the first place. Mm. Um, or these charismatic species. But yeah, so it, it takes a shift in what what we're willing to see as as food. Mm. And. To bring in the, the ecotourism aspect of this, which, as you said, is, is very different to your sort of the Kyrgyzstan example. Uh, for all, first of all, frame what ecotourism is, because this is a term which gets used a lot. Yeah, and used I think, and misused. Yeah, I was going to say inappropriately very often. <laughs> yeah, um, certainly in the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years. Um, so if we think about like what, what is nature tourism, right? What is wildlife tourism? It's, um, you know, people are going out to these places who want to see wildlife in, in sort of something that resembles their natural habitat. Um, you know, people want to go on a safari. They want to see elephants. They want to see lions. They want to see giraffe, zebra, all these, all these things. And um, you know, stay in a lodge and go go in a jeep, um, or you know, people have this romantic image of like floating in a hot air balloon over the Serengeti as they watch the elephants beneath them. You know, trample acacia trees. <laughs> um, there's a sort of image that we have when we think of what what tourism in Africa looks like. You know, a, a non-consumptive tourism, let's say, non-hunting tourism. Well, it's e not. It's non-consumptive of the wild. Right. So. Right. Right. And it's certainly not no impact. Yeah. Um, different. The impact is different. So ecotourism. In contrast, like it, it has that aspect, right? It's 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 about going out and spending time in nature or viewing nature, um, but it's uh, intended to be uh, more sustainable, lower impact. Ideally, it it, it should be uh, with sort of greater respect to local communities, to indigenous cultures, and uh, it should be done in a way j just like this with community based hunting, where the money that gets spent remains remains with those communities, remains in those places, um, instead of, you know, being removed from the country and going to some tourism outfitter based in the US or Germany or Russia or whatever, um, just like with just like with hunting outfitters. So it's sort of all of those things. It's a sort of more sustainable, more sustainable way of doing tourism. Hmm. And you look at uh, when so in your business, when you're engaging with clients, are you having discussions about the impact on the ground from actually going to a place and the considerations that need to be taken into yeah, account? Yeah, so um, that's – and that probably is just a reflection of what my own, you know, sort of interests and obsessions are when it comes to thinking about these things. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, we take people – um, small groups, like maximum of 14 people. Again, to these like, you know, bucket list destinations, Peruvian Amazon, you know, Ecuadorian cloud forests, Galapagos. Um, we're doing a Namibia trip uh, next year. Um, the central high, the highlands of central Mexico to look for the overwintering monarch butterflies. I didn't know that's where they overwintered. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Like you walk through these like 
fir, these high altitude fir forests, fir trees, and you're surrounded by literally millions of butterflies. Are they in a sort of dormant state? Uh, uh, no, so they 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 cl- they clump on these trees at night. Um, like so much that their collective weight makes the branches sag. Well, that many. And then when it gets like when the sun comes out and it warms up, they like take off and they go fly around and look for water and nectar and you know these things. And then they mate. The migration will begin again when they start flying back north across you know up up North America up to sort of northeastern North America, Canada, things like that. That um, must be spectacular. And, I'm and, gonna and add that to my bucket list. It's so cool. And um, you know, just like we've been talking about when it comes to hunting, um, because because there's a tourism economy around seeing these butterflies, the local communities who who you know for whom these butterflies sort of depend on the resources in their backyards, uh, have an incentive to protect them, to not convert those forests into farms or mines or, uh, you know, anything like that. Um, so the argument is very similar to what we've been talking about. It's just um, a different kind of tourist. Uh, so so we we spend, uh, you know, five days or a week or, or 12, 13 days with these people. And um, it's an opportunity to have a sustained conversation over multiple days about some of these complex issues and what sustainability really means, what uh, conservation really looks like on the ground. Um, how, uh, how do your decisions as a consumer back home impact uh, these ecosystems half a world away? Right, so one of the big problems in the part of the Peruvian Amazon where we go is gold mining, uh, which is illegal, and like terribly destructive to the environment. Part of the process involves um, basically releasing tremendous amounts of mercury of course, into yeah. the environment and it just kills everything. Because it helps collect the gold. Yeah, it? so the gold that exists in like the river mud, um, it doesn't come in like nugget form the way, the way it does in like California. It's like, it's like a fine powder. And so there's these like complicated, uh, well not that complicated, there's these like machines which pump the muddy water up excuse me and then this like sluice and they like pour the mud over this like kind of carpet on this incline and it catches the particles but then there's this dust so then they have to shake the particles into this barrel and then they add mercury the mercury binds to the gold creates this amalgam which then can be sieved out and then um then you burn the mercury off and that that waste flows back into the ecosystem and it's really it's we all know the mercury is not that great for anything it's not just bad for the ecosystem it's also really bad for people and their human health you know mm. being exposed to those we all know about the man has and so to un- for people to understand the impact of buying gold jewelry if it's you know not if it's not if they don't know where it's coming from if they don't know if it was you know mined in an ethical way on you know the homes of these monkeys that we're seeing and the jaguars that we're looking for um, and the people who we're asking to coexist with those creatures you know if we're successful then when they go home they're now empowered to to think about those everyday decisions in a more nuanced sophisticated way it takes a certain type of person to want to engage in that kind of trip. Someone who is conscious of learning more yeah. so that they can make better decisions in the first yeah. place. And I don't know that when someone signs up for one of our trips, I don't know that that they necessarily know that that's what's that's what we're going to talk about. You know, they're they're we you know we're selling sort of these uh, ecotourism trips that are heavily, you know, they're, they're very nerdy. They're very sciencey. You know, we're, we're not just looking for wildlife. We're really talking about what it means to study this wildlife, why it matters, what the relationship is, what the relationship is between people and wildlife. Um, but I don't think anybody comes on one of our trips and expects to have in-depth conversations about like the role of hunting. <laughs> um, you know, that's that's. Um, you know, maybe it's a bit of a Trojan horse situation. But I think because the kind of people 
who come on our trips are, I think we've sort of gotten our marketing materials to put to a place where the people who are signing up and spending the money are there for what we want to give them, the kind of experience. Um, and I think they're naturally curious people who uh, um, are willing to grapple with these questions. And I think, you know, we sort of figured out what the right way is to, to talk about them. Um, you know, it, it doesn't happen on day one. You have to, you have to establish some trust. And, uh, and that happens, you know, I can write a 3,000-word article as I, as I've done about these topics and, and reach a certain number of eyeballs. And, and that's, and that's important. Um, but there's a different level of engagement when you spend, you know, 10 days with a group of 10 people. Um, you need both, but you get very different kinds of very different levels of engagement. I think, I think, uh, what you said there about curiosity or people who are curious, I think creating curiosity amongst more people is a way where they will better be able to engage in the environment around them. And it somewhat concerns me with, if we just look at um, tourism, photographic tourism, people who, who come to Africa because they want to see the wildlife, that it is very easy to have a situation where you can cater for those people who want to see wildlife, but in a very uh, artificial way. So you can have, so I think Kenya is quite a good example of that because most of the country has lost a huge amount of its wildlife, but there is these small pockets inside the parks which are held up as these incredible right. success you know, stories. What, yeah, wildlife reservations. And that is true inside the park, but it doesn't mean that it's a success story for the entire country, which is most of the ground. And so tourists go there they feel immersed in it. They tick their boxes, elephant, lion, buffalo, all of which has been, have been largely habituated to, by tourists to, because to they're yeah. driving around roads all the time. Yeah. So it's like, oh, yeah, another, another car, <laughs> big deal. So it, it's, it's not wild. Um, it's not necessarily natural. Right. And I, I wonder whether it gives people, well, I think, I think it does give people in that instance a distorted view of uh, the management in a, in a particular country. And I, I just worry that, that those kind of situations make people feel comfortable that, yeah, everything is good, when actually they're, they're not curious enough to really understand the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a complicated one. I mean, on some level, I mean, if we, if we sort of take the complications with, you know, Kenya's approach to wildlife management out of it, we just talk about sort of a tourist who comes to have that kind of experience. On some level, you know, you're, you're right. You know, they're, they're probably going to leave with a skewed perception of what wildlife in Africa looks like, what habitats in Africa look like. And even though arguably, you know, in these kinds of parks, there are real ecological, like these are functional ecosystems. They've yeah. certainly changed. <laughs> Um, and if, you know, I don't know that there is an ecosystem on the planet that's not changed by people. I don't think there is. Um, but uh, you know, to the extent that all of the benefits of tourism are occurring economically, you know, maybe like maybe that's okay. Maybe if tourism is a tool for conservation, I don't know if we need every tourist to to to, to grapple with these incredibly nuanced things, right? Just, just just like not every hunter necessarily needs to come with the right intentions or the right motivations. Um, but if as long as they're contributing, they're a tool for conservation. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe that doesn't matter. Um, still, yeah, still, that's a good way of looking at it, actually, like the comparison between the tourist who yeah, that's fine, tick your boxes, and and maybe the hunter who really just wants to be there right, for his own purposes. Right, right. And this is something that. Um, when I, when I was in uh, 
in Tajikistan, one of the guys I was talking to, who was a member of a conservancy, but also worked for Panthera as like a wildlife technician, said to me, you know, there was a time when, uh, you know, every every village had, you know, it's, it's two or three or four skilled hunters, and they would go out and they would, you know, shoot some animals and bring the meat home and people would eat. And then, uh, and in this time, there were sort of these unwritten but sort of commonly accepted rules for how you treat wildlife, right? Which animals were okay to shoot, which were not. Even um, you're talking about when it was illegal. Yeah, 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 but but sort of it was part of the culture. Okay. Um, and then uh, killing technology improves, and uh, while you know hunting, I don't I don't think is ever easy. It, in some ways, it becomes easier, and more people can successfully go out. And, you need less skilled. Yeah, do. yeah, and. As that occurs, what he tells me is that some of the, those sort of unwritten rules start to be forgotten. He says now what has happened is um, a as a result of the extreme limitations that are on hunting now, it's sort of encouraged a return to these old rules for how you treat wildlife. The only difference being that instead of the uh, Tajik or Kyrgyz villager being the one shooting the animal, it's it's an international foreign hunter who's pulling the trigger, uh, uh, you know, and, and instead of just getting the meat, now you're getting a big check. Um, and the meat. And the yeah. meat. But, uh, you know, from, from that perspective, this person, they, they are, they're a cog in the machine, right? They're a tool towards a certain, a bigger end, mm -hmm. a conservation outcome. Um, and, you know, I think while we would all prefer that every tourist Every hunter came at it with the right motivations. Does it really from an matter? outcome perspective? Does it you know is that is that the primary? You know, I, and is it realistic? Right, right. Yeah. So you know, I would love it if every wildlife guide, every professional hunter, every tour guide was sort of prepared to to, to engage with their clients on these you know difficult questions. Uh, but that's you know, is that realistic? You know, uh, we do that. In part, in part because that's important to us, and in part because you know we 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 were science communicators first, who you know found tourism as an interesting sort of uh, and, and and fun you know business. It is a good point, and uh, it's something I have spoken to before. Where as long as the outcomes are net positive, then the reasons for somebody doing something shouldn't really matter as long as the management principle is there. So it doesn't really matter who pulls the trigger because somebody is going to pull the trigger right. because by virtue of the fact that that animal has been selected is part of a management system. And I maintained that for a long time. And then I spoke to Shane, who we just uh, yeah. spoke to uh, just maybe an hour ago uh, on our podcast. And I kind of put that to him. I said, should it matter the reasons why the motivations for an individual person as long as everything's positive. And he said, well, yes, it does matter because uh, the moral justification for your actions is what is important to people. And I think on, on that, yeah. and then this kind of goes back to what we said about half an hour yeah. ago, is that I think we can all agree that if the outcomes are positive, then that is a system that can be supported, but it doesn't change the fact that people still grapple with the notion that an individual person would want to take right, actions right. of death against something like right. an elephant. I mean and, and you know there's a you know there's a slippery slope here and, and that's again something that we learned that the scientific community sort of learned in the aftermath of Cecil 
which is that um, for many people, even if they sort of understand the economic arguments, still like they don't they don't overcome the morality argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so economics know, isn't enough. Yeah, and that in that you know you can sort of extend the same kinds of arguments to justifying human slavery and you know this and that and um, uh, you know I'm not a philosopher, but but I think I think there's something to that. Um, I think that's not a crazy concern. <laughs> yeah, so um, we should all be more conscious of our actions yeah. and the impact of those. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, this is so deeply complicated. There's messaging concerns, but and there's also conservation concerns, and and sort of the proper way to address each of the sets of concerns might might not necessarily be the same set of solutions. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I think I'm going to need about. A month yeah. to digest the last couple of days, but yeah. it's it's certainly been useful, and it's been great to have. From my perspective, it's been great to have you in the room. It's been great to have Car in the room, and the the Austrian journalist as well for yeah. tackling it from much more of outside the hunting community and being uh, questioned on things that we maybe say and and take for granted yeah. as a given. And yeah. challenged on those. Yeah. I, I've been challenged in an open-minded way. It, like, yeah. The discussions have been really constructive. Yeah, and in good faith, done yeah. in good faith, um, which I think is important. Um, and I've even found myself, you know, I'm, I, as you said, I'm, I'm sort of outsider on, on the sort of very peripheral sort of edge of the hunting community. But even I've been forced to sort of re-examine some things that I sort of just take for granted. Um uh, which is, you know, an important exercise. Um, mm. We yeah. should all do it more yeah, often. Yeah, yeah. On, on on every topic. Mm. Um, so yeah, Jason, it's been great to chat to you. Uh, I know you. it won't be the last time, and uh, yeah, I suppose we've got another h- half a day here. I'm yeah. gonna probably have my brain chewed by a car <laughs> now when I go sit down and do a podcast there. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. Yeah, thank you. And that's it for another two weeks. Don't forget that you can get all the information about us and the shop and everything that you could possibly need on our website, which is thepacebrothers.com. And if you are trying to find new ways to listen to the show, we are now on Spotify, we're on Podbean, we're on uh, Stitcher, uh, we're on YouTube, though not many people actually uh, listen to it on YouTube because it's not really a platform that I would listen to it on, but there is definitely one or two of you that do because we get regular comments on it. Uh, and if you want to email the show, and we get emails all the time, and we love receiving them, we really do, and if it takes us a bit of time to respond, uh, then it's just because we're busy, uh, but we will get round to responding to you. It is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, and if you want some more in-depth information about Modern Huntsman, then just head over to the Modern Huntsman website, just Google it. I think that's basically actually how everyone finds website nowadays. You don't even type in the the, email, the web address, you just google it and it and it comes up we will be back with you in two weeks time and we hope you enjoy the rest of the the end of the end of summer i feel like it is going to be the end of summer now it's the weather is getting a bit more uh up and down a little bit more unpredictable uh the harvest around where i am they have pretty much completed it so i imagine the farmers are around around the uk anyway are uh, furiously finishing the end of the harvest so I hope you guys uh, are successful in that and that we've uh, kept you company for uh, at least a short period of time during it. 